Hi, this is Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. This week, we'll be talking about finding a place of rest in an uncertain world, even if only for a little while, and about solidarity and what it means to take someone's back, especially in troubled times, no matter if it's personal trouble or universal trouble, like a ball of confusion by the temptations. Listen. The only person talking about love and brother is the preacher. And it seems nobody's interested in learning but the teacher. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, humiliation, obligation to our nation. with Fish Out of Agua. So, one of the things I wanted to talk about last week, but didn't get to, was to remind everyone listening that in some of the stories you're going to hear are situations and language that would absolutely not be acceptable today at all. But, as the saying goes, those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And as for me, this was my specific experience growing up in the times that I did. And that is where, hopefully, a conversation can begin so that we never have to go back there ever again. Some people considered 1968 one of the worst years ever. Civil and world unrest, the most volatile political situation in the United States in recent memory, until now. LOL, right? <laughs> Only not really. 
But one of the bright spots this year was the music. It was a time when you turn on the radio on any given day and hear a mishmash of music genres. Doo-wop, blues, early rock, R&B, psychedelic rock, pop rock, hard rock, soul, were all at the turn of your AM dial. This song was one of the biggest hits that year. A multi-genre rock, funk, soul song from a multi-ethnic, multi-racial band who seemed to epitomize what could go right going forward. That is, if 1968 would, in fact, go on to become 1969. Like this song from Sly and the Family Stone, Fish Out of And now, chapters 11 and 12 of Fish Out of Agua, Titi Dulce's Revolution, and Spanish on Sunday, Part 2, Titi Dulce's Revolution. Dear Michelle, I just wanted to say I am so sorry for the way I left your mother's house the other day. It's just that I get so frustrated because she won't talk to me. Well, she'll tell me about what she's making for dinner or what good grades you're getting or what new dress she bought, but she will never talk to me about the things that really matter, like like peace and the war and what is happening in the world. But then the other day, well, I, I just couldn't believe it. I knew something was wrong, and not just from when your mother was sick, from way before that. I can see it in her face every time you come to Mommy's, your grandmother's house. What she said? No, it can't be. It's not impossible. It, it, it's just impossible. But I, I wanted you to know that I'm, I'm not angry with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm not angry with your mother either. I just think it's best if your mother and I 
we don't see each other for a little while. You are almost nine years old, Michelle. Your whole life is ahead of you. You have nothing to regret, nothing to wish you could do over. But I want you to know that sometimes things happen that are nobody's fault and nobody knows why. Sometimes you love the wrong person, but you cannot help it. Sometimes life does not turn out the way we wish it to be. But don't let someone's else don't let someone else's past be your future, Michelle. If there is something you ever need to tell me, you can. You know I love you. And I love your mother too. Even though she doesn't think so right now. Love, peace, and flowers. Titi Dulce. Spanish on Sunday. Part 2. There was never a letter like this from Titi Dulce. And this time, it might, have, it might have made a difference if there had been. Until I was nine, Titi Dulce was my idol. She was 24 and everything I wanted to be when I grew up. Not that I wanted to be married like she was or have babies like she did. What I wanted was to be as beautiful and loving as and universally loved as she was. Everything Dite Dulce did, said, or touched seemed to get nothing but praise, smiles, and attention. Everything I wanted to have. It was Sunday afternoon. I hated Sundays. It was the day I had to pretend to be Puerto Rican, as opposed to the other six days of the week, when I had to pretend I wasn't. Sundays were the hardest, scariest days of all because I was always afraid something bad was going to happen and my mother would have to go away again. This Sunday, my abuelita, my titi Ophelia, and my titi Carmen were in the kitchen finishing enough pollo quisao, chicken stew, to feed five armies. Papa Julio walked in to complain that the food was taking too long and walked right back out. My father and Titi Ophelia's husband were in the living room watching the Mets game while Kevin and our cousins Benny and Ray Ray played with G.I. Joes. And I was sitting at the table in Abuelita's dining room, drawing. I had a new obsession. I was drawing books with fashion models wearing beautiful clothes like on Rowan and Martin's Laughing, the comedy show that launched the careers of Goldie Hawn and Lily Tomlin. I was allowed to stay up for it. Kevin wasn't, even though he was in love with the socket-to-me girl and always tried to sneak out of bed to see her. I loved watching that show. It was one of the only times my mother would laugh for real, instead of with that bitter screech that would make me want to put a pillow over my head and call for the kittens. Titi Dulce came into the room. She was very pregnant. She had been pregnant twice before Cousin Ray Ray was born and once after. She had cut off all her dark brown hair into a pixie haircut and frosted, in, and frosted it platinum blonde. She looked like the Boricua Mia Faro, which I only knew because I had heard Titi Ophelia say that. Under the frosted hair and the swirl-printed mini-dress, her face was pale. Of course, I didn't know that she would only have her second live baby after five attempts. But she still smiled and hugged me. What are you drawing? I'm making a book, I said, and I showed her the cover for book one, The Mod Mod World of the Go-Go Girls. Titi Dulce picked up a drawing of a girl wearing long, dangly earrings, 
a midriff blouse with a big peace sign medallion and hip hugger bell bottom jeans. <laughs> I wish I could wear that. She pointed to a huge stomach and smiled again. My mother was in the dining room with Titi Dulce and me, but she was staring out the big window that faced the Hudson River, the window from where you could see Palisades Amusement Park over in New Jersey. At night, it was beautiful. Everything was all lit up, and you could even count the cars on the Ferris wheel as it spun around. I used to do that all the time when I was living there. My mother looked perfect, as always, but she also looked tired. She had spent the morning screaming, releasing some of the hurt, anger, and fury that always swirled inside her like a volcano whirlpool. But like a whirlpool, no matter how much poured out or swam down to the bottom, it always filled right back up and came to the top. Then Abuelita said, Ven acá! And everybody came in to eat. Five-year-old cousin Benny, who was Titi Ophelia's son from the first husband whose name no one ever mentioned anymore, switches from English to Spanish flawlessly. Grandma, Abuelita, I'm hungry. Tengo hambre. Dame un poco de algo, por favor. Even Ray Ray, at two and a half, squirming in his high chair, speaks more Spanish than I do as I struggle to ask for un otro glass vaso of refresco, por favor. My brother Kevin, who is a year older than Benny, doesn't even try. It's hard enough for him to speak English sometimes. He has to go to a special speech class in school. The dishes were passed. Ray Ray, Benny, and Kevin all slurped down their chicken stew with big smiles on their faces. I didn't. I carefully picked all the capers, olives, and bits of recao off my plate and every bean off my rice before I started to eat. Titi Ophelia was looking at me with her lip curl the entire time I inspected my food. She was now on husband number three, a quiet, bespectacled man with thinning hair wearing a powder blue jacket with a Nehru collar. He started to say something, but she cut him off with that side-eyed look and he went right back to eating. Well, of course, he had to be quiet. He was married to Titi Ophelia. You know, Lucy, Titi Ophelia started, maybe the reason why Michelle is so difficult is because you do not teach her about our food. <laughs> what do you cook at home anyway? She is becoming a chubby little gaudy flona. My mother stiffened, her ivory skin blanched yet another shade lighter, setting off the contrast between it and her black hair, and even more contrast with the beige and brown faces of the rest of her family. But before she could answer, Titi Dulce cut in. Titi Dulce looked at my mother, and then at Benny shoveling in rice and beans, and said to Ophelia, Oh, but it's okay that your son is fat because he's eating what you want him to eat? Titi Ophelia turned right bread turned bright red and retorted, Oh, yeah, Dulce, and when is Raymond coming back from upstate? It must be so hard to be living back here with Mommy and Poppy again. You must miss him so much. And then they both started arguing in Spanish until Abuelita made them stop. After dinner, everyone went into the living room where the couch, my old listening spot, was now pushed firmly against the wall. The TV went back on, the G.I. Joes came back out, and Ray Ray was put down for a nap. My father took, up, up, took off upstairs to the roof with Ophelia's husband to smoke a cigarette, even though Ophelia and Dulce both smoked in the apartment. And I walked into Abuelita's room to draw until it was time to go home. 
I looked up when I heard music. Dite Dulce had come in and turned the radio on. She was dancing the Sly and the Family Stone's Everyday People and singing along. Come on, she said. I'll teach you to mash potato. She tried to teach me to dance, but I was as stiff as a 70-pound bag of frozen lard. I quickly gave up and flopped back onto the bed. Dulce continued dancing. Her tiny feet were a blur, and even though she was huge, she still seemed to float over the floor. Benny waddled into the room and jumped up and down. Then Kevin came in. Huh, my little brother was a better dancer than I was. I left them and went back to the back bedroom to get Ray Ray. I thought, well, let's see how good he can dance. But as I went into the room and reached into the playpen, I sensed something and turned around. Papa Julio had come into the room. He started to close the door. For almost a year, I had lived in that apartment like a vole, hiding in shadows, never knowing if or when the weasel would strike, and when it did, I'd go back into darkness to lick my wounds alone. I knew what a vole and a weasel were. I had read The Wind and the Willows. But I didn't have to live in that back room anymore. So, instead of backing up as I always had, this time I ran toward Papa Julio, and it surprised the both of us for the instant I needed to squeeze between him and the door. I ran down the hall until I saw the break front at the end near the kitchen. In it were all of Abuelita's good dishes, the ones that had come all the way from great-grandma's house back in Corozal. But Papa Julio was right behind me, and I was afraid of what would happen if he caught me. And before I knew what I was doing, I took off one of my shoes and I threw it at the break front. It shattered the glass like an explosion. Don't touch me! I screamed. Everyone immediately came into the hall and stared at the glass sparkling the floor and me sitting in the midst of it. Feet came running down the stairs and into the apartment. It was my father and Tito Ophelia's husband. There was a flurry of Spanish, and my father picked me up and said, Why? Why, Why did you do that for? I could tell he didn't really want to spank me. He never did, actually. But I knew I was going to have to be punished for this. And I couldn't say what had happened to make me do this. If I did, I was sure my mother would have to go back to the hospital and I would have to live in that apartment again, and it would be all my fault. And I started crying. My mother was standing behind Abuelita, Titi Carmen, and Titi Ophelia. They didn't see her. No one could see my mother but me. My father's back was, my father's back was to her, and everyone else was in front of her. Her face went white and then still. And then all of a sudden she said, Don't hit her, Rudy. Don't. And my father said, what? It was an accident. I saw it. Michelle was skipping down the hall and slipped and fell into the break front. It was an accident. We should be glad she didn't get hurt. I saw her eyes searching the hall. Was she looking for Papa Julio? I turned around to see if I could find him. But he was not there. He had disappeared. And when I turned back, so had my mother. Gloria al Señor, praise the Lord, Titi Carmen said. It's a miracle, a miracle. See, si, un milagro. Carmen squinted and raised her arms skyward with the framed photos of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus all in agreement behind her. I started to relax. Maybe everything was going to be okay. 
Except Titi Ophelia came out with, Accident my ass! But before she could finish her thought, Dulce, who had been looking at my mother and me the entire time, grabbed at her stomach. Abuelita leaped toward her. Mija, you must lie down now! And she shot Ophelia a look that produced another milagro, another miracle. It closed Ophelia's mouth. The grown-ups started to clean up the glass, and I ran into the living room. I ran into the dining room. I had a feeling my mother would be there. And she was, back at the window staring. And I could tell she was watching the Ferris wheel. It was all lit up from the lights and the setting sun, spinning and going nowhere like the whirlpool, the whirlpool and the vortex. I could see that my mother was trying with all her strength to control. My father came in and said it was time to go home. We took a checker cab back to the Bronx, my mother and Kevin staring out of one window, my father staring out of the other. And I just lay across the folding seats and went to Kitten World right in front of all of them. I had to. The entire day had just been too much for me. It had been too much for my mother, too. When we got home, she wouldn't stop speeching and wouldn't take any of the pills my father tried to give her. After a while, he gave up and spent the rest of the night on the phone. And I was sure she would go away again and it would be my fault, but my mother didn't go back into the hospital. Instead, Abuelita came and stayed with us on the days my mother spent her days at a day clinic and my father was at work. And Titi Carmen, Titi Dulce, and even Titi Ophelia took turns coming over too. And I remember going into the kitchen not long after that Sunday and seeing Titi Dulce sitting there with my mother. Although I didn't hear what they had been talking about, Titi Dulce's face reminded me of Sunday school when we learned about Lot's wife who had turned into a pillar of salt because she had seen something she wasn't supposed to. And then suddenly Dulce got up and put on a sweater that couldn't close over her belly, but before she left, she handed me a bag. Inside was a new twist-and-turn Barbie, a skipper doll, and an extra outfit for both. You can draw them for your next book, Michelle, she said. You're getting really good at it. I was happy to get the presents, but I didn't know why Dulce was leaving, so I hugged her. She hugged me back. I can't be sure, but I think I know now what Diti Dulce and my mother were talking about. I think my mother told her that what Papa Julio had done to her. And I can understand Dulce thinking that that was treason, horror beyond belief. I mean, it was, after all, her father. How do you get, how do you wrap your mind around the fact that your own father could do something horrible, something like that, to your sister? It goes against everything you know to be right. It goes against love. I always wondered if my mother stuck up for me that Sunday because she knew I was running away from Papa Julio. But she never asked me about it, and I never told her. I wouldn't see Titi Dulce again for a long while. She didn't go back to live at Abuelita's. Instead, she and Ray Ray moved in with her mother-in-law, Uncle Raymond's mother. They would stay there until Cousin Evie was born, and Uncle Raymond had come home. But by that time... I had found something else to admire. 
Hi, this is Michelle Carlo back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. So I'm sitting here today with our guest artist this week. She's someone that I know from back in the 20th century. Oh my God, does it go back to a date with our dead husband, Hector? A date with my dead husband, Hector. I think it could be before that. Oh, my God. So I'm going to say at least 1995, which uh, don't do any math, people. So please welcome, um, oh, my God, I love this woman so hard. For so many years, we've been, like, doing the, fighting the good fight and struggling the struggle. And um, we are both producers and theater artists and published authors and so much more. And here we are together after all this time still doing the do. Please welcome Linda Nieves-Powell. Oh my gosh, thank you, Michelle. This is, this is fantastic. Oh, great. So what, the interview or what I'm doing it? <laughs> what you're doing and the fact that we can come together and always talk about where we're at. I know. This is crazy. I mean, this literally, I mean, when was a date with my dead husband, Hector? That was in 1995, oh but I think God. it was prior to that because I remember being at a some sort of place where Rosie Perez was yes. there and you stood up. Yes, that was, the, I talked about this last week too. It was the Latinos in Acting Conference at the Public Theater. And Your mind is better than mine. Yes, and I, and I stood up and I asked, um, like, I would go for a casting for white people and they would say, well, you don't look, like, you look kind of off. And then I would say I was Puerto Rican and then be like, no, thank you. And then I would go to a casting for Latino people right. and then they'd be like, well, you look white. And I'd be like, what do I do? And somebody who's going to remain nameless said to me, said that I should go for, for the white person's casting. In other words, they wanted me to pass. Uh, oh, I never leave anybody nameless. I'm, I always I'm, I'm, I don't want to say it. I, I don't want to say it. But you know, it's not worth it. It's not it's worth true. it. It's, it's true. It's not worth it. So, um, but, and this is not about me, this is about you. So I want you to talk about um, your trajectory as an artist from since oh, the 20th century. Geez, that's, that's, that's a lifetime of stuff. Um, well, it started with John Leguizamo. It's okay. easy to start there because that's exactly when it started, in 1993 with uh, Mambo Mouth. Oh my God, I love that play. Yeah, and it really, really, really changed my life. Um, Spicarama was next, and I just saw this person talk about Latino characters in a way that I had never done, had seen it before, and it freed something in me. And I n didn't write anything before, but I decided to do what he did. So what were you doing in 1993 when you first uh, saw Mambo uh, Mouth? I was in a horrible relationship. I was just getting out of it five years. Were you acting? Were you what? I was doing nothing. Nothing oh. in the arts oh. whatsoever. And you saw John Leguizamo and that changed your life? And I swear, the following day I wrote an entire play. Oh my God. Was it a date with my dead husband, Hector? No. <laughs> it was. I'm going to um, leave this alone. It was. It was. I can't believe I can't remember the name. That's okay. It'll come back to you. Skip. Okay. But my uh, the first person who wrote, uh, read it was my mom. And she was hysterical laughing. Oh, good. And that's the piece that I brought to the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater's. Uh, playwriting workshop. Right, with Alan, Alan Davis. Davis. The third. Is he still alive? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> no, he was such a nice man. He is oh, such a yeah. nice man. And Miriam Colon was still there. Yes. And um, I'll never forget an actress by the name of Eileen Galindo. I know her. Awesome woman. She read the piece and said, Linda, you have to submit this to a writer's workshop in L.A. It was the Kaplan... Steve Kaplan was, was putting together some sort of contest. Anyway, it placed really well there. Wow. And if it wasn't for her, because the workshop at the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater really just made me feel like, okay, maybe I'm not a writer. You know, all the critiques got to me. Right. But it was Eileen and the fact that I placed well 
in that other contest that made kept you, me going. So it made you think that this is a possibility. It was meant to be based on the fact that I put, I, I, you know, I was validated somewhere else. Right. No, you get a thick skin when you're in art school and they put all your shit up on the wall and they critique. <laughs> so it's just like, oh my God, it's so hard. It's so hard. But, but she was a champion. I never knew that. Oh, yes. Yes. And she was, she um, was kind to me also. When wow. I first started out, See? yes. Eileen Galindo, thank you. Gracias. I always give her a shout out. Yeah. Always. Uh -huh. We have to let her know about this. Yes. So then what happened? And then um, I just kept writing. It was a bug in me. I just wow. kept writing. And then I wrote a, a Day With My Dead Husband Hacker. And didn't that win some HBO thing? That That's the that's the same contest. Oh, okay. That is the same contest. Oh, okay. And um, yes, it did. Yeah, so explain what the HBO contest was. It was, um, you could submit anything. You could, I wonder if it was just Latinos. I'm not sure because there was a lot of Latinos. No, it was not just Latinos. It was definitely something that there was like 3,000 submissions a year. You could enter monologues, plays. Wow. And just a bunch of stuff. I wish I would have known that. Anyway. It was great for um, uh, beginners. Yeah. Yeah. Because you didn't know where you were. Right. You, know, you didn't know where you, f where you could fall into. Exactly. And then it was a day with my dead husband, Hector, and then Amigos and Dreams. And then I remember that. I discovered that nobody wants to produce your stuff, so you have to produce your own stuff. So I learned how to produce. I worked with Veronica Caicedo at Lateas. She directed a few of my first pieces. Um, we and did one with Papo. Papo, Papoletto? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. I remember something being in a couple plays. Yeah, the junkie and the clock or something. The yes. junkie stole the clock. <laughs> Very good. Oh I can tell you, I can't, I can't remember anything. So, uh, but I took some time off after that because I, I was, it was a lot of hard work and it did, and I did really well. And then suddenly something was happening in me and this whole thing about yo soy Latina. Mm. I am Latina regardless of whether I can speak Spanish or not, and, you know, or da you know, like rock and roll or whatever. And this theme kept coming up and my baby was two years old. I woke up at four o'clock in the morning for three weeks straight and I was truly inspired. Wow. This was after my grandmother passed away too. And I think, wow. I feel like that had a lot to do with keeping her alive in some That's way. That's so funny because my grandma passed in 94 and it was right after that that I decided to devote my life to performing. See? See, abuela. They, they have, Here we there's are. a connection there because you so, do want to keep it alive. So they're hanging out in El Cielo looking at yes. us. <laughs> And I swear it was like that experience, the Yo Soy Latina experience was incredible because it lasted and could have kept going, but I got tired, but yeah. it lasted a very long time. And can I, full disclosure, I auditioned multiple times for a part in there, which I never got, but it's You know fine. why? Why? Oh, now the truth comes no, out. No, no. It has nothing to do okay. with talent. It has everything to do with characters. Ah. Everything to do with the specific type of characters that we're Right, 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 right. Yeah, so... Yeah. I love you. You know but that. I know. That was, otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> so, okay. So, so, but then I, okay. So, another full disclosure. After Yo Soy Latina, which, describe what that play was about. It was about. I, I am a Latina. I am a Latin woman. It was about six Latina women who come together at a workshop to, to figure out what this uh, Latina word means to them. And uh, the facilitator never arrives, and they wind up having to answer this question on their own. Mm. It's funny. You cry. They find their, you know, similarities and their differences, and it did so incredibly well on the college circuit. We had a, a regional um, offer for a run. We had off-Broadway performances. There was a uh, Tony Award-winning um, theater crossroads that did a what do you call it? Equity production. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Equity production 
Gina Rodriguez was uh, in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's good. I was going to say, like a virgin. Jane the virgin. Jane the virgin. <laughs> you can tell where I'm from. Yeah. Uh, 80s, holla. <laughs> 90s, holla. Yeah, Gina was in it. Um, yeah, it was really, really great. And the thing that I really loved about that play was that it showcased all of us in our rainbow. There was, I yeah. remember the part that I was trying to audition for was a girl that was, I think, half Cuban and half Irish yes. or something. And, yes. I thought, and I thought, well, I'm a shoe-in. I have red hair and freckles. Yeah. And there were girls that varying, varying shades of beige, brown, and black in and, this production. And stories. And stories. Yes. And stories about how being who you are affected you and being who you were affected how you were perceived not just by the outside world but by people within your own friggin family and sometimes now, and now you know years later with the help of the internet and everything's going on and truth coming out that we weren't crazy and thinking that we felt like outsiders. No. Now it's clear yes. that yes. we are outsiders. Well, that was one of the things that triggered me writing Fish Out of Agua was because of the, the attitudes with that exact thing in my right. own family directed at my own mother by some of her own family. Right. And I was just like, no, I wanted to out this skeleton in the in the Latin closet because it's, we do worse to ourselves than other people can do to us sometimes. Because it, it's about the colonized mind. You th do that. you think that's what it I is? I truly believe that we are conditioned to believe certain things about ourselves. And it takes a lot of unlearning to get to a point where you can accept anyone to look any way Regardless of who they are, because if you notice, it was just a lot of silly little things our parents and maybe their parents believed in when they came here. Yeah. But they did that as a survivor thing. Yes, they These are survivor they, yeah. mechanisms so that they can navigate this world without being, they didn't want to cause too much attention. Yeah, and also they wanted to be American. When my yes. my 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 dad's yeah. family came here, I, I, I always joke that I'm a Mayflower Puerto Rican because my dad's is true. My dad's family came here in 1928, and my mom's family came here in uh, from where? From from Cabo Rojo. From my Puerto dad's family Rican? came from really? in 1928. Wow. That's why they, that's why we that's why my family my dad's family was the joke is that we're Mayflower. My mom came here. And I think in 1938, when she was like five or six. So I know most of the migration happened after World War II, and all yes. my family was here before, before. World That's interesting. War II. So like they wanted to be assimilated. That's why my parents did not did not teach us Spanish because I think they didn't want us to have any stigma or any. Uh, problems with school that they had had, not realizing, of course, that it's like, you know, 30, 25, 30 years after the fact, and now the pendulum has gone the other way, where if you don't have that bilingualism, it's like, well, what did your parents do wrong? Well, I think it depends on where you were brought up yeah. and who your parents are, because mm. for me, my parents were one way in the house and a completely different way And you're way Puerto outside. Rican. And I'm Puerto Rican. Yeah. So you could always tell when my mother was on the phone with a white person. Um. It was a whole different dialect. It was this, she was playing, how you, how, what's that word? There's a word, anyway, I don't know what it is. But um, Will Smith does it a lot. Playing that role? No, it's going back and forth. There's a word for that. But um, we'll, get to, we'll get back to that. <laughs> but yes, it's, um, you know, so, so we had to be one way in the house. So I didn't have to speak Spanish. They spoke Spanish, so I picked it up, but mm. I never practiced it because when I went to school, there was no one Spanish. Oh. I was, I was, you know, it's pretty much, I grew up in the city. Did you grow up in Staten Island? No, I grew up in uh, 61st and 1st. Oh my God, right behind Lincoln Center. No, no, right no, no, e e no, no, east side. Did you go to Cathedral? I went to uh, Our Lady of 
perpetual. Okay, hall. because cathedrals on fifty seventh, and like right, 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 and, right. and like first or second, like right next to art and design. No, I went to Our Lady of Perpetual Help, and it was diverse there. Yes, my friends were Italian though, which was weird. But so. there were a lot of Latin people in the school as well. We lived right near the 59th Street Bridge, and my father was a super of the building there. Oh, okay. And so my mom saved my dad's money, $6,000 from um, him playing in a Latin band. He mm -hmm. had a Latin band. Oh, I didn't know that. And so, yeah, he started the band. He sang it. He wrote songs. He even wrote a couple of records wow. that came out. But anyway, so she, she saved that money, and they went to Long Beach, Long Island which was where I became a writer, I swear, in my head, because wow. it was just a whole other ball game there. So how does um, you think the thing that we were both, we, we uh, were talking about like two seconds ago about how the different perceptions for language and, and, and culture between like people from our generation and people now, how do you think that affects what we did as art or what other people are doing as art now? I'm sorry, what? Okay, the thing like, okay, like the most, like, okay. like how my parents wouldn't speak, wouldn't, wouldn't teach oh, us Spanish. Okay. And like how your, your parents were like one way okay. in front of like Caucasian people and another way in front of us. Like how my parents would only speak Spanish to their own relatives. Do you think that that colored what we, what we did later as artists? I mean, colored, like, like influenced, like color, right? I think that what we did in, what that was very similar is that we told our truths. Yes. And by telling our truths, we we kind of free those people that are in those same situations. Because as Puerto Ricans, we're not all the same. No. We all have different experiences. Of course. We have different religions, yes. different faiths, different, just different. And as do Dominicans, yes. Just as Dominicans and do. Or Cubans, or Colombians, or Venezuelans, or Mexicans. And we're from or, New York. Yeah. That's an experience. We're born and raised. Someone in LA, someone anywhere else, Texas, Florida, it's going to have a different. Chicago. How about all the Puerto Ricans that are going to um, Orlando now? I know. That experience is very different than the Lower East Side, yes. Puerto Rican. Yes. And I didn't grow up on the Lower East Side or in the Bronx. I was 61st and 1st. Yeah, Manhattan girl. The Latin <laughs> from Manhattan. So, yeah. Um, but I think we both told our truths. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my, my whole thing is that I'm wondering when we, as Latinos, are going to, like, be... I recognize, legitimize. I'm not sure what the right word for it is as as artists because like we have not had our big breakthrough movie yeah we have not had our big breakthrough um tv show or breakthrough i don't even know what you want to call it we're not, gonna have, a, it. We're not gonna have a breakthrough we're gonna have mini big breakthroughs Good. and jane the virgin is is, is 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 an example of that we're gonna have we, we're we're doing it but i think it's we have to do it ourselves Our, yeah. ourselves or get out there and connect with people who get our stories because other people that don't have the same experience they they look at it and they either try to add to it or they try to dilute it or they try to up oh, some that's that's an outside thing you know this is this is live radio people anything can happen so it's 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 such a balance. Time for my medicine. It's such oh my god. <laughs> I'm kidding. Adderall. Time for the Adderall. It's it's just such a delicate balance. It is. It is. And I think we're getting somewhere. And I think there was a time where I got very frustrated that there was nothing happening. The truth is, you make it happen. Every time Michelle Carlos decides to work on something else, well, there's hope. There's something else. There's another avenue. Just like what I've taken to photography. Yeah. It's the same thing. So now I have a, a, a an additional thing, another way of showing Latinas. Yes, Latina icons. Latina icons, which we're working on the Afro-Latina 
version series this she has an actress model that she um dresses up as famous latinos from actually like, six six different models oh six oh i thought yes, it was yes. the same one yes no that was the launch series oh, with okay. rebecca um so th this is going to be from this is really what the series is about is diversity so that's great and that's yeah. what that's what we're about linda do you have anything you want to say to any if there are any millennials or younger people listening oh keep writing keep creating keep being uh, keep hoping keep keep hope alive keep doing what you do because it's going to turn into something one day yes and our stories need to be included and we need people to know that we matter man That's we right. matter we you do. know it's like just like me i'm I, I had no idea how to do a radio show six weeks ago i still don't but it doesn't stop me that's like what punk. i love about us it's like punk latin <laughs> punk all right linda thank, thank you, you michelle and we're back with fish out of agua on radio free brooklyn the next story from Fish Out of Agua happens in the not-so-wholesome summer of 1969, which was the actually the only time I can remember the United States actually becoming united in protest of what the majority of the population had come to realize was an unjust war. Yes, the Vietnam War was still going on, terribly so. But Neil Armstrong walked on the moon 10 days after my ninth birthday that July. In August, a three-day music, love, peace, drug, and mud fest known as Woodstock happened in upstate New York. And in October, the helpless, hapless New York Mets were helpless and hapless no more, winning baseball's World Series against the Baltimore Orioles and led by my father's second favorite player, Tom Seaver, the phenom he spoke so highly of just two years before. His first favorite player, the Bronx's own Eddie Cranepool from the Castle Hill Houses, of course. And just about a mile or so away from there, in a sprawling concrete playground across Westchester Avenue from St. Peter's Church, this story happened. Chapter 13 of Fish Out of Agua. Just another day in the park. Hey, look, it's the speck! Another slight... Another summer. For the past two years, we had lived on St. Peter's Avenue in that Italian-Irish-German-Polish neighborhood where we had been the first Latino family to ever live there and where families had once complained to my father every chance they got that our food stank, our music was too loud, and my brother Kevin and I ran wild throughout the halls. And it didn't ma matter that my mother fed us Wonder Bread, instant mashed potatoes and stovetop stuffing, unless it was a holiday, and that the only music we ever listened to was Huma Skella, Johnny Cash, The Fifth Dimension, and the 77 WABC Music Radio's Cousin Brucey's Top Ten Countdown, and that my brother Kevin and I were not allowed to play in the hallways at all. But I suppose somebody had to be blamed for the relentless rock music, when everyone knew Puerto Ricans all listened to Santana, thank you very much, and the stench of burnt garlic, because not all Italians can cook, and the junkyard of broken Tonka trucks and half-melted crawly creepers abandoned on the stairs because, hey, that's what kids do. But maybe some kids did play inside their buildings, but once summer came, all the neighborhood kids I knew were encouraged, persuaded, or forced out of their houses or apartments to the playground up the block every day, starting immediately after breakfast until dinner time at 5.30 or 6 p.m. Welcome to the summer of 1969, when telephones were in the kitchen and water came from faucets. Video games and cable TV had yet to be invented. 
hippies were getting ready for their legendary three-day music and mud fest, and children actually played outside for eight or ten hours a day. Tender, innocent, wholesome games. Marijuana, marijuana, LSD, LSD. Rockefeller makes it, Mayor Lindsay takes it. Why can't we? Why can't we? It was 10.30, maybe 11 o'clock in the morning. I was nine years old and standing in the middle of St. Peter's Playground, and I was watching a group of kids on what we used to call a sliding pond, a slide, and the kids were playing a game. I really, really, really hope no child anywhere plays at all anymore, ever, because this game was called Nigger on the Bus. Hey, Spick. Hey, Speck. You want to play? You can be our nigger. <laughs> to play this game, three kids would first go down the slide, each alternately swinging their legs over the opposite sides when they reached the bottom and staying put. But the game didn't officially start until a fourth kid slid down. And then everyone would start to chant as the fourth kid slid down as hard as he or she could with the sole intention of trying to knock as many of the bottom kids off the slide as possible. And as more kids joined in the game, the stakes increased exponentially. And soon, there were, there were a dozen kids running and climbing and screaming and sliding and falling. And then someone yelled out, oh no, here comes Fat Pat. Fat Pat, Fat Pat, Fat Pat, the sewer rat. Fat Pat, also known as Pasquale Balina, was black of hair, swarthy of skin. Ten years old and the unofficial desperate ruler of St. Peter's Park, he seemed not to notice his name's prefix as he lumbered up the steps. He was the boy who had called me a spick and branded me as the speck back when I was in second grade because, as he told everyone, eh, she's too small to be a regular spick. As Fat Pat reached the top, he took a moment to catch his breath, savoring the mounting unease from the squirming bodies below. And then he yelled, Nigger on the bus! Nigger on the bus! And he flung himself down the shiny silver path of ruin. The irrefutable laws of physics and gravity took over, and as his mammoth haunches collided with the spindly frames of the next closest children, a sort of domino effect took over. Five, six, seven kids were suddenly catapulted off and over the slide, landing on the concrete below. Ow! 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 The kids yelled as they assessed the damage. A scraped knee, a twisted finger, a shard of glass sticking out of a calf. Make no mistake, in our minds, these were war wounds, just as much as were the tallies of the Viet Cong and United States dead and wounded we heard about each night as our parents watched the Huntley Brinkley report. Oh, make no mistake, St. Peter's Park was a playground battlefield. And, as always, I was on the wrong side. Speck! Fat Pat flung at me as he went around to start the game again. The first irony was that Fat Pat, like many of the other kids of Southern Italian heritage in my neighborhood, were two, three, even four shades darker than I was, but that didn't matter. Since I was Puerto Rican, I was a speck, and therefore I was the speck. The second irony was, from my days behind Abuelita's couch, that I knew there were five different words that our family had used to differentiate the color of one's skin. There were moreno and negrito, which meant brown and black, which, depending on one's tonality and prior relationship, 
were also terms of endearment. Then there were Prieto and Tregeno, which have no direct English translation and at the time seemed to me to be nothing more than mildly insulting descriptions, much, much like calling somebody ugly or stupid. And finally, there was Cocolo, which loosely translates to coconut head. By no means could Cocolo ever be considered non-offensive. You did not ever call anyone a Cocolo unless you wanted to start a fist fight. I knew all this. And the third and the most shameful irony? Once I had actually wished that somebody somewhere would call me a spick. Oh, just once. So I, so I would know what it was like to feel that righteous indignation, that justified anger created by that nasty ethnic slur. I had once even begged Kitten World for it. I had imagined I was walking down the street when someone stopped me and said, Hey, look at that spick. And I said, What did you say? Spice? Stick? Oh, spick? You think I look Spanish? You think I look Puerto Rican? Yay! Hooray! Yippee! And then Titi Ophelia floated down from heaven on a cloud of Virginia Slims and clapped. It was not one of my finer imaginary moments. But when it did happen for real, and Fat Pat had named me the speck, I cried. Because that was the first time I realized that I was, I was a double outcast. I didn't fit in with my family, and I didn't fit in anywhere. And even though not every kid in the neighborhood called me that, and even though, yes, some of the kids did play with me when Fat Pat wasn't around, it still hurt. A lot. Mr. Softy arrived at 2 o'clock, just in time for lunch. I dug into my culottes pocket for the quarter my mother had given me and sat on a side bench with my blue gelati Italian ice and wooden spoon, digging at the vaguely lemony stickiness that would turn my tongue a psychedelic turquoise blue. Hey, you want to play jump rope? It was a small, a small group of also misfit, misfit girls, Dawn, Nicole, and Janie, who all the cool kids called faggots, but didn't mean a homosexual. Not at all. No one I knew knew what that was. I certainly didn't. Instead, to us kids, it meant by, that by your physicality, too thin, like Nicole, appendages, glasses, braces, or both, like Dawn, or general doofiness, like your mother made you wear skips, the cheap sneakers that weren't Keds or PF Flyers, like Janie, you too were just not cool enough to play. And as for me, I was a bit chubby, but wore no appendages and was dressed better than most. My mother took us a few times a year on marathon shopping excursions downtown into Manhattan to stores like Orbach's and Bloomingdale's, where she'd spend hours scouring the sale and clearance racks for her pastel mini dresses, white knee boots, swirly scarves, and clothes for Kevin and me. So no, I did not wear skips. Hey, we need an end. Donna had to go home. Okay. I took one end of the rope, a long piece of dirty clothesline, actually, and the smallest girl, Janie, took the other. We started turning as the metal-mouthed Dawn and the splinter-thin Nicole took turns jumping, and we all sang. 
Miss Lucy had a baby. She named it Tiny Tim. She put him in the bathtub to see if he could swim. He swam to the bottom. He swam to the top. Miss Lucy, Miss Lucy got excited and pulled him up by his cocktail. Ginger ale, five cents a glass. And if you don't like it, I'll shove it up your ass. Me no more questions. I'll tell you no more lies. A man got hit with a bowl of shit. How many times? One, two, three, four. This was where little Janie and I started turning the rope as fast as we could because if we could get Dawn and Nicole out before they got to 10, then they would have to take the rope and it would be our turn to jump. Hey, let's play junkie tag, Fat Pat yelled from across the playground. This game was based on the popular schoolyard game called Freeze Tag, except St. Peter's Park was three blocks away from a daytop village methadone clinic whose patients were almost exclusively Vietnam War veterans in their early 20s. They would get their doses, then go back to the playground and sit on the back benches where they smoked cigarettes, cursed the United States government, and nodded out. But eventually they'd need to go to the store for more cigarettes, and when one or more of them would stand up to attempt to trek across the street to the deli, that was where the game began. Because... Being they were junkies, they couldn't travel more than a few feet without stopping for a few minutes, tilting forward or sideways like a troop of bandanaed, army-jacketed, even in the summer, leaning towers of pissers. And whenever they were spotted, the call for junkie tag would go out, and the most daring child would pick a junkie and run as close to him as possible with the intention of tapping him and then running back to home base. You got extra points if you could knock the cigarette out of his hand without getting hit back. Oh, man, get the fuck out of here. i catch you. i fuck you up. Oh, shit, man. That was Crazy Vinny, leader of the St. Peter's Playground Junkie Veterans Association. He had swatted at me as I, who had not been invited to join the game but who had run out anyway, had knocked the half-smoked cool cigarette out of his hand as he toppled over. He sprawled on the concrete, groping for it. Fucking kids, man. I'll fuck you up. Fucking fuck. Ah, shit, man. Why had I done that? I couldn't tell you for certain. Maybe it was because that even though I knew saying nigger and spick was wrong, and even though I knew that if Darlinda, my blood sister, my best school friend had been here and heard that, she would have first cried and then fought them, all of them. And even though I really didn't want to play that stupid, stupid game, still, I I wanted to be invited, allowed, welcome to play with them and not be their speck. I ran back to my new girlfriends, unsure of what was going to happen next. Hey, watch me, Janie said. And she ran up the crazy Vinny and snatched the cigarette off the ground, a bare inch away from his clawing fingers, and then ran, ran back to us and took a triumphant puff. You want some? she asked, offering it around. Nicole, Dawn, and I stared at her, half in admiration, half in disgust. Ew, cooties! No, wait, let me get some, Fat Pat demanded, and he grabbed the nearly burned-out cool from Janie's hand. None of us thought that was strange. These were the days where two kids would share a cigarette, three would share an RC cola, four would share a stick of gum. We called it ABC, or already been chewed, but no one got sick. Kids back then were never sick, 
except for maybe sometimes when your mother would make you climb into bed when your cousins who had the German measles in hopes that you would get it and then get it over with so they wouldn't have to pay for the vaccination. Hey, the parky just sent up the knock hockey. Who wants to play? Come on. Fat Pat stuck a cigarette butt in his mouth and waddled to the front of the park house where the parky had set up a knock cocky board on the battered, splintered, lone picnic table, shooing off a couple of junkies who had decided to recline there. Knock hockey was the precursor to air hockey and foosball. It was a wide, rectangular board divided by red goal lines with open slots at each end and a diamond-shaped wooden block in the center. A kid would use an angled stick or her thumb to bounce the round wooden puck off the sides of the box and through the opponent's slot to score a point. The first person to score 11 won. Seven nothing was a shutout. First Janie, then Dawn, and Nicole, and then finally I ran to the group, hoping without hope they'd let me play with them. And they did. I was thrilled, and I beat both Janie and Dawn, but lost to Fat Pat, mostly because he terrified me too much to shoot straight. Clang, clang, clang. Clang, 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 clang. The bells of St. Peter's Church across Westchester Avenue announced the changing of the guard. Clang, clang, clang. Clang, 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 clang. It was now six o'clock in the evening. Time for us smaller kids to go home. The teenagers, wearing their fringed and torn bell-bottom jeans, were just starting to come out for the night. They clustered around the big swings, opening quarts of Schaefer beer and rolling joints. The junkies had all retreated to their back benches. Yes, God was in his heaven, and all was right with the playground. And as I left, the song the teenagers had been singing stuck in my mind. I'm a juvenile delinquent, marijuana do or die. I smoke with the sailors and I drink with the bums. I wait on the corner till my pickup comes. Oh, I'm a juvenile delinquent. It all became perfectly clear to me, as clear as the early fingernail moon rising above the roof of my building as I said goodbye to my new friends. Maybe I had to be the speck, but I had been the one to knock the cigarette out of crazy Vinny's, Vinny's hand. That had to count for something, right? So yeah, maybe there was a way to fit in after all. That night in the apartment, my mother went to her window right after dinner and speeched. Who knew what had happened that day to set her off? Maybe she had an argument with Abuelita or one of her sisters. Maybe the cashier at the A&P stared too long at her. I had given up trying to figure it out. I tossed and turned as I tried to get the kitten world. But the kittens didn't come that night, or the next, or the next. And it would be a full month before I realized the kittens would never return. That's our show! If you liked what you've heard today or on a past episode, please consider supporting Fish Out of Agua with Patreon. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on Radio Free Brooklyn and click on the Sponsor This Show button. See you next week and here to close some Santana. I hope you're feeling better.